From all the questions that I get asked, this one comes up quite often. How do I become an engineering manager? While I don't know the answer myself, I think I have an idea of who might have the insights on this topic. Rebecca Murphy tried a lot of things on her way to becoming an engineering manager at Stripe, from journalism to advertisement and even learning how to fly. In this episode, I sit down with Rebecca to learn more about her path, what were the important lessons learned in her non-tech career that helped her be an efficient engineering leader, and what aspiring engineering managers can start doing today to figure out if this career track is for them. Enjoy the show. Rebecca Murphy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Rebecca, I read your essay, Girl and Computer, and I just knew that I had to reach out to you uh, and have you on the show and tell your story. Before we get into some of the details around it, uh, I want to learn more about your career. You are an engineering manager right now. Where did it all start? Tell our listeners, <laughs> what was that journey like? Uh, it really depends on like how you, where you, where you start counting, but, but, uh, there's a version of the story that I really think begins like in middle school, working on my middle school newspaper, well, you could even go back farther than that. But, but that's kind of the point where there's, there's pretty consistent thread from there through working at newspapers, um, being interested in journalism and then that kind of transitioning slowly into into coding. It's self-taught as a as a uh, developer and front-end engineer. And uh, from there, one day I was working on a team that needed a manager. And I said, I think I would be the best person to be that manager. You know, middle school was a really long time ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's been it's been uh, quite a quite a journey, quite a path. So you work at Stripe now. And it's been a very, an interesting journey. And I would say a very atypical one because you don't see a lot of people talk about, you know, I went from newspapers to now I'm an engineering <laughs> manager. Uh, do you ever think that you saw yourself having a career in engineer? So again, I'll refer to your essay, Growing Computer. You called out the fact that you were five years old when you were into computers. Did it click with you at the time that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? Or was it more of just kind of tangential to your main interest? Yeah, no, very much uh, tangential. I think like computers were a hobby then. And I think like it, it took me a long time and kind of the, the encouragement of a good friend to help me understand that this could actually be a career because I don't think that that was, that didn't feel as clear. And sort of like it, became clear. And now I've got my seven-year-old kid playing with computers. It's kind of like, he doesn't understand that this could be a career either because computers are everywhere. And for me, it was like computers are nowhere. So how could this be a career? So no, I wouldn't say that I really thought that this is what I would be doing. I would say that I want you said like that not all the people who go from newspapers into engineering management, you would be surprised um, how many people, especially in the front end space, come from some sort of media background and end up in a technical or tech adjacent role. I'm constantly surprised by the people who I run into who actually came up in some sort of media related program and didn't, you know, computers were a tool, not a... <laughs> not the objective. Uh, and one day they found themselves writing code because that's what it took to, to achieve their job. So it's just been sort of a surprising like uh, theme throughout my career that I'm not that weird in that regard. So it's interesting you called out media. Again, in your essay, you're talking about working and publishing in newspapers and you called it out now that there's actually more people working than this career track or doing this career transition that I knew. Uh, and I Fully, fully disclose that I do not know how many people do that. We actually work <laughs> with one of my colleagues, uh, Christina Warren. She's been uh, working also in media and she's now a cloud advocate. She made that jump as well. How was that uh, for you? How did those experiences in publishing and newspapers help shape your current career? Like what were kind of the big takeaways that empowered you and said, this actually helped me be better at what I do? I think front end is really the connection, right? Like my, my career in media, air quotes, really started doing what might be called desktop publishing. It was doing like, you had this idea of what you wanted the page to look like and where the words should go and where the pictures should go and where the captions should go and the headline and those sorts of things. And in the old days, you like laid that out on paper with rulers and stuff. 
Um, and then you sent it to the publisher who would figure out how to turn that into you know, plates that would print the, the actual page. By the time I was in college, well, even back in middle school, there were computer-based tools, but they were pretty terrible. By the time I was in college, there were like pretty mature software tools for doing this quark express at the time if people uh if anyone knows knows that one and then a few years later InDesign from adobe came along and uh, this is a tangent but i like i find this fascinating because i was using these tools in this very manual way to kind of say put a box here and put the words here and uh, and and very, very manually laying out, this is what this should look like, and this is what a headline looks like, and this is the font for the caption. And it was very manual, and at the same time, I was kind of becoming aware of like HTML and CSS, and this idea that you could actually kind of have style sheets, which came to Quark and came to InDesign, but you know, there was a time when, when the tools you were dealing with were sort of like they were pretty. They were pretty rudimentary. So I think that the 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 jump from I am laying things out where the destination is paper, to I am laying things out where the destination is a screen wasn't huge, and I was actually really attracted to the formality of doing it for a screen because you you had tools for kind of describing the rules that the layout should follow. We didn't have CSS grids or anything like that. We were like dealing with tables and stuff, but still you had like you could express in code the rules that the page should follow. So the page sort of laid itself out. And that was so cool compared to like having to draw, you couldn't tell a quark, like follow these rules to produce the layout. You had to produce the layout yourself. So uh, that was kind of the, the bridge for me from this media. I've also always been interested in writing and communicating and news and all that. But really the bridge was going from laying things out on a, for a paper, for a sheet of paper, to laying them out for something on the screen. So let's go back to the origins. So publishing and newspapers, what drew you to that specific track? Because down the line you went to engineering, but what started the interest in publishing? Why was that? I think, and, and even still, I've, I've just been, the power of disseminating information. <laughs> and I think that's what I love about the web too, is, uh, just, just the power of disseminating information. And in, you know, when I was growing up in the in the 80s and early 90s, like that power to disseminate information was extremely centralized. And there was one hometown newspaper, and there, but there was also a hometown newspaper for the next town over. And, and so like, I, I had this visceral experience growing up, like for a while I was reading the back of the cereal box at breakfast, but eventually I started reading the newspaper and I was just fascinated by, like, I wanted to be part, I don't think I had words for it. I don't think this was like a conscious thing, but reflecting on it, I just wanted to be part of, like, that was such a powerful part of my day and a powerful part of how I understood the world, even when I was like eight or nine, that I wanted to be part of that, but not in any way that I ever articulated. I just thought that was really cool to be the person like when I met the person, like these, these, the, the actual people behind these bylines that I had been reading since I was nine, it was like, you're real. And like, you're a human who gets to do this incredibly cool thing to kind of shape how people think about their world. And I think that was, they had these, these people in these small towns had so much more power at the time because that was the primary way that you got your news. What helped you gain the the skills necessary to break into that industry? Because I have never worked in publishing. I've never worked in um, you know newspapers. What does it take to just get even get started with that? I, I don't know what the answer would be these days. And I think that, uh, I, I would hesitate to recommend getting started in that industry these days. I think one of the best things that I ever did was to leave that industry in the summer of 2001 um, shortly before it started completely falling apart. And in the summer of 2001, I quit to, turned out, I, I quit to be a bartender. Uh, that wasn't really the plan, but that was kind of how it ended up working out. And I was making about as much money um, and having a lot more a lot more freedom and fun. But but I think like back then, I did, I went to school to get a, get a journalism degree. I didn't finish that journalism degree, but that's, that's what I ended up pursuing. Um, so you can, you can get a degree in this and various, I, I think there's also like getting into the media space. There are definitely even today programs around media and communications and strategic marketing and 
all these sorts of things that you can get into. So, you know, I wouldn't begin to know how to how to advise someone to get into that world today, though. It was for me, I kind of wandered into it just based on interest. And I, I think the biggest skill I had was that I already knew I showed up to the job already knowing the tools, like literally how to use Quark on a Mac running OS 9 or something like that. So pretty much you learn by having a hands-on experience yourself by just doing it. Yeah, I think I took like, the my senior year of high school. I was the editor of our high school yearbook. It was the first year that we used computers to lay out the yearbook. I think I went to a class that the like yearbook publisher put on and they taught us how to use PageMaker 16. Like what, it, I don't know, I don't remember much about that, but yeah, it was a lot of just hands-on, hands-on experience. And I think, again, I think that was such a moment in time thing. I don't know, I, I imagine those, those skills are a lot less valued today than they were then because it was, it was differentiating that you knew how to use these tools that were relatively new. And so the fact that I was like 19 or 20, whatever. I actually would love to hear your take on the importance of degrees since you kind of touched on it. And this is something that we see in conversations often today, especially when it comes to engineering careers, right? There is this kind of, I want to say almost like a selective bias towards folks that have a computer science degree or an engineering degree or like, you know, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, but something engineering. And yet you're proving that you can be successful with a very diverse set of experiences. Do you think that is going to change in the future where that the value of, say, the computer science degree, like you don't need it as long as you can get things done? I really struggle with this question because it's true that I am like I am personally more successful than I ever could have fathomed, <laughs> period. Degree, no degree, what that doesn't matter. Like I, I, my, my growing up was, I did not have access to the enormous privilege that I have access to today. I had access to lots of privilege growing up. I, I want to be clear about that, but I did not, it's nothing compared to what I, what I have access to today. And so it's true. Like I, I am a incredibly successful person who does not have a degree. I, I think I said in my email to you <laughs> that like, it's not exactly clear, like what I did that led me here instead of being a waitress in upstate New York till today. Like, I think that I have had a ton of luck. I've had a ton of privilege. I've had a ton of support. I was very fortunate that like when I needed to come home and sleep on my parents' couch for a while in my early 20s. That couch was there and the food was there and the power was there. Like I was, was very, very fortunate that when I got stuck, the structures were there to support me. This was not a linear path from like drop out of college to I'm an entry-level software engineer. There was a lot of times that this outcome was not was not a foregone conclusion. I think that all that said, like, I think it's obviously it's possible for people to succeed without degrees. And I'm definitely skeptical of the cost of degrees. I don't know if that's the, the like most cost efficient way to get somewhere, but I, I do think, I, I think that you can't, you can't expect to get lucky. <laughs> you have to have a plan and a backup plan. And like, I took a lot of bets and they paid off, but I don't, it was not a foregone conclusion that they would. I don't know. Like I, I, I do think, I do hope that we'll see more like vocational style programs for getting people into, into technical careers. Like I, I think that's viable. I think in many ways, colleges and universities don't at all prepare you for real world <laughs> software development. But I'll also say that like, I've had to work really, 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 really hard to have a seat at the table to be to to be able to participate in conversations and ways of thinking and ways of, of kind of organizing thoughts and talking to people and all these things that like maybe you learn at maybe you learn at college maybe you don't I don't know I, I, I left before I finished I was there for two and a half years you can't just show up and say I didn't do this and I want all of the same all of the same experiences as somebody who did you're going to have to figure out where those gaps are. And it's on you to figure out how to address them. Uh, and that's hard. That's hard work. 
I agree. And thinking back of even my my own college experience, a lot of the things that I've learned in class, it, it resonates with me so much that you called out that the college doesn't really prepare you for it. Because once I started my career, a lot of the things were not the things that I learned in class. How do you communicate requirements to an engineering team? How do you work with them and interact with a design team that now needs to build that out? Like none of that was a class. Right, right. I want to ask you, and this is probably a naive question on my part. You mentioned that you had to fight to have that seat at the table and to build that knowledge and authority over time. What were the biggest blockers or maybe the biggest challenges on the way there? I wouldn't say I had to fight. I would just say I had to work. I wouldn't say there was any, there was no adversary here. There was no one I was like fighting against. I was fighting against my own gaps in knowledge. I think one of the, one of the really, and I don't know if this is like going to school versus not going to school, but like every now and then I will, I will discover that this thing that I think I have just like realized on my own from first principles is actually a well understood concept that like I was just never introduced to. There's that. I think I've also, uh, and I think this is a thing that people in front end can really struggle with. I really had to learn about to be an effective engineering manager and effective at larger companies. I can't just be, oh, I'm the front end person. Like when you need front end things, you come talk to me. I have to be able to talk, talk and understand and ask intelligent questions about the entirety of the system. Um, and so that has, has, I've had to be really intentional about learning about those parts of the system that are, that are uncomfortable for me or unfamiliar to me. And, and I've definitely found myself like, I have to, I find that it's necessary for me to find kind of like trusted guides for that because I don't want to just openly acknowledge, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, so making sure that I have the support that may be in the company or outside the company to ask you know, dumb questions, ask questions about like, I, I don't feel get this. Well, and this, the, the flip side of that is I have over time learned that like, this is not like front end is easy and the rest of this stuff is hard. This is that there are two different domains and they each have their own complexities. And there's a lot of things that people don't understand about my world that I have to explain to them in like short sentences with small words. I've, I've gained that confidence over time, but I think there was a period of time where, was, where it felt like I was gonna have to work really hard I felt like I had to work a little bit covertly, honestly, to fill those gaps so that I could participate in the important conversations going around me and not just shrink back and say, let me know when there's something front end to talk about. You mentioned support systems. And I know that early in my career, and this is something that I hear a lot from folks that I have regular conversations with, that it's it's hard to establish the support system because oftentimes folks just don't know where to start. How do I find a mentor? How do I find somebody that I can trust and explain the challenges that I'm encountering at work or in my career? Oftentimes, talking to these folks, I realize that there are some of the challenges that they run into that I ran into and I did not have the same support system. What helped you build that out? Like, What was your approach to getting that support system and having those trusted people that you can kind of confide in and get their takes on what you're going through? I think the first thing I'd say is that part of it is figuring out how to be your own support system. Uh, and that's a really unfulfilling answer to this question. <laughs> but I think that's a failure mode. I see a lot where people are, people don't know how to put in their own work to get close to the answer. You may not get to the answer, but there's a big difference between saying, tell me how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And saying, I tried to do this. I tried these three things. They didn't seem to work. I read this blog post and it seems like maybe I need to do this thing. I don't really understand what this blog post is saying though. Can you help me? Huge difference. And so learning how to kind of make progress and articulate with specificity where you're stuck and to do your kind of due diligence and do your research and then zero in on, I got this far and now I just don't understand these words. <laughs> can, you, uh, can you explain to me these words? Because I think once I understand these words, I can make progress. So, so I think that's the first thing is like learning how to, learning how to help yourself 
make progress even if you don't get to the solution. And the internet is a wonderful thing. Like it exists and you can go out and read a lot of things about a lot of things. And so if you're hearing about an unfamiliar concept, like don't wait until you need to know what that concept means. <laughs> Like, go uh, put it in Google and leave the tab open and come back to it and read, like, uh, you know, what what is this serverless thing and how are people using it? Or that's a very, like, 2014 uh, thing to wonder about, I guess. But so, yeah, I think there's that's the, the first thing I would say is, like, learn how to be your own support system, even though that's insufficient. I've been very fortunate that I have been able to either lean on pre-existing relationships or form new relationships, perhaps because I was doing that thing where I was asking specific and informed questions. I don't know. I'm sure I wasn't always doing that. <laughs> but when I think about the support systems I've had, they've been, they've been all entirely based on actual relationships that I had with people. They weren't going up to a stranger and saying, will you be my mentor? They were sitting down with somebody at lunch and learning about their their life and their work and their kids and their family. And then it's, it's not, it's not a switch that you flip that you have a support system. It's like you develop relationships with people and then sustain those relationships. Like I have my job today because of somebody I met in IRC in 2008. Can't say I did a great job sustaining that relationship, but clearly I did a good enough job sustaining that relationship. So, uh, but, but yeah, I think that, and this is such a, it's a non-answer. Like if, you know, how do you develop a support network by developing a support network? Yeah, I don't, I wish I had something more useful to say, but I think the, the failure mode there is not making that kind of investment in the relationship before asking for the support. I, I think you're getting to a very important answer. Uh, and this is kind of the theme is make sure to foster your own network because don't lock yourself in a room. Don't lock yourself in the office and say, I will do this myself, everything talk to people, ask questions, find communities. Is that the right take on this? I think it's that, I think it's also like work isn't just about work. Like to be successful at work, you can't just work. <laughs> Those, uh, and I've, I've seen this be true from like back when I was learning very early on to even today, like to be successful uh, in my role today requires forming relationships with people and uh, yeah, I, I remember when I when I started, I was just telling somebody this today, that, that when I started um, in my current role, I was having all these meetings with all these kind of people that people said I should meet. And people on my team were like, so what did you, what, what should we do based on that meeting that you had with so-and-so? And I was like, I don't know, that wasn't the point. <laughs> the point was not to like, you know, come out of that with some specific tasks. The point was for them to know who I am and for them to know that I exist. And that when they do need something, they can come to me. And like that, that's so building those relationships without kind of this, this action-oriented objective, I think has been really, has, has paid off for me a lot over time. This is, goes counter to the narrative of the hyper-productivity where every meeting should have action items, follow-ups. Sometimes it's good to meet just to understand people better, to learn about what they're doing. Yeah, I, st I struggle with this because those it's hard to have a meeting whose purpose is to chat, right? <laughs> like, so, so it's hard to structure those times and yet you need to find ways to create those times. But, but yeah, I totally agree. I think especially in our all remote world right now, it can be really easy to say like, don't, don't have a meeting, just deal with it over Slack or push back on, on agenda light meetings. But I try at stand-up every, especially like at the beginning of every week, but to, to some extent every day to make sure that there's like just some downtime to just talk about stupid things because we're missing the ability to do that in person. And human connection is so, so important. Yeah. That I, I, I get that reinforced through every workplace, whether it's remote or in person. Again, it's isolation hurts and it hurts in more than one way. Yeah. The, the challenge that I'm saying is that, you know, going back to like, I was a, I think one of the most valuable jobs that I have had in my entire career was being a bartender because before then I was terrified to do everything that I'm talking to you about right now. I was, I was scared to, I was scared and found it unpleasant to talk to random people about random things. And then like, 
that was how I made my living was by talking to a bunch of retired dudes about baseball and getting their help on the crossword puzzle while I served them like too many martinis in the afternoon. And like, that was, that was how I made my livelihood. So I had to get comfortable with chit chat, (laughs) chit chat with strangers. And it was excruciating. And then it wasn't. And I think that is one of the most valuable skills that I have obtained in my my life. It's just knowing that I can talk to anyone for 15 minutes. So speaking of getting outside of your comfort zone and related to your current role, one of the things that I hear often, I'm not a manager myself, but I hear when folks say that if you transition between somebody who's an individual contributor, whether it's a coder, product manager, designer, to a manager position, the skill set is going to be vastly different that's going to be needed for you to be successful than what you did before. Now, for you, when you became a manager, what helped you adapt to these new responsibilities? Because you talked about kind of bartending, getting out of your comfort zone and being forcing kind of yourself to do things that are uh, very scary. And I'm sure it was probably very scary becoming a first-time manager where you've not managed people before. So what helped you adapt to those responsibilities? I might be really typical in this or really atypical in this, I don't know, but I I had spent a lot of time kind of considering and learning about management before I actually became a manager. And so I had like followed Laura Hogan's content forever. And I don't remember if the manager's path was out then, but like like I was a I, I was a reader of this sort of content. Um, because I found it, I found it interesting, just the, the running effective software teams and also kind of feel like, but I'll never do that. <laughs> that sounds terrible. But I was, I was interested in the principles and the concepts, especially because as you become more senior, um, even as an individual contributor, you have some responsibilities in that space. So, so I was a consumer of that kind of content before I took the leap. So I, I wasn't like walking into this super naive <laughs> Um, still pretty naive. I, I think this is again, kind of a cop-out answer. Like I think that a thing that helps me be really successful uh, to the extent that I was successful, I think that helped me be successful to the extent I was successful was the support system I had around me. And so, you know, before I became a manager uh, at my, at my last company, I was fortunate to have um developed relationships with other people who were managers and who had been managers there for a while. And so when I started down this path, I, they were, they were there and available to me to ask, like, I didn't know if the questions were stupid. I was, some some of the questions were like, am I supposed to know how to do this? Is this a thing that's going to happen every month? Or is this the thing that's going to happen like every 10 years? Because some, some of the stuff feels really weird. (laughs) But I had developed a relationship with with people who were more tenured at the specific company, which I think is also really important. Uh, and so they were able to to help me a lot. I also had a manager myself who I feel like was was supportive and was really pretty intentional about not giving me too much too soon, and was very available to kind of help me help me navigate things. So you know, I read a lot and I had good people around me. Is the short answer it's kind of the story of my story of my life perhaps no and that totally makes sense what was the push that steered you in saying i actually want to do management because to me even i have the dilemma myself sometimes where i love being an individual contributor i love having the responsibility and then having the option to look at the things that i help drive and build and seeing i shipped this as a manager, I feel like you're kind of losing a little bit of that because now you're you're managing a team of people and it's your goal to empower them rather than say, I did this. So what was that push for you to say, I want to go into management? I mean, very specifically, like the, the, the direct answer to this is that I joined Indeed uh, as an individual contributor. I They didn't really know what they were going to do with me. They just knew that like I seemed okay at front end stuff. Um, I pretty rapidly realized like, oh my gosh, (laughs) 
we, we, there are some real opportunities to have dramatic impact on the business and on product development here. If we were to staff, if we, if we were to invest in that and talk to my boss about that and, yeah, at first it was like, well, we're going to need a manager for this team. And I guess we'll find one. The more I thought about it, the more I was like, I don't, I'm not convinced that we can find somebody who would be better than me. So it's a little bit, a little, uh, a little bit of hubris there. To, um, but I think in that specific instance, it was probably pretty close to true that, that I don't think that they could have rapidly hired somebody who was better than me for for a variety of reasons that don't matter. Uh, not because I'm so great, but like organizational friction and uh, organizational muscles and all those sorts of things. So um, it was really sort of the, there was no like, I want to be a manager. It was more like, I can't imagine reporting to somebody. Like I worry if I report to somebody, I'm gonna actually have less agency to drive the vision and strategy and, and achieve the results that I see, uh, I see that we could achieve. So it was, it was a little bit of like just being possessive and arrogant, I guess. <laughs> um, I had these ideas and I wanted to do them. And I, that kind of brings me to, I would push back on this idea that, you know, as a, as a manager, you just enable other, you do like totally true. You do just enable others. But I think in, in my previous role and in my current role, both, I've had a lot of agency to set that direction and to kind of, to have a strategy that then the individuals are executing on. And it's so rewarding. I didn't know this at the time, but I know it now. The most rewarding thing about when I, when I left my last company was being able to look back and saying like, I can't believe where we came from and I can't believe like my fingerprints are on so many things here today um, that I don't think anyone really could have imagined when I was like raising my hand and saying, I can do that. So I find that really rewarding. I don't think I knew that. I know that now. And now it's kind of addictive <laughs> to me, to be honest. I don't, I'm, I'm a mediocre individual contributor. Code is fun and whatever, but figuring out that like, how do we get there like this place that we won't get to for years, how do we get there one step at a time and maintain funding and support all the way? <laughs> I find those really fascinating problems, really, really interesting challenges. So something that if I understand correctly, and this is probably tying into this idea floating around that going into management is like a promotion, that you've been kind of going through the ranks and now you're a manager. What's your opinion on that? Do you see the management track as a promotion from IC or is this two parallel tracks? How do you see it yourself? Yeah, I mean, the, the party line here is it's it's a different job and I think that's completely true. I think like, going from uh, you know, mid-level engineer to a staff or principal level engineer is also a different job. So like, even that is like, yes, it's promotion in that you got more money. Uh, but it's not, it's not just keep doing what you're doing. Good job. I think the same, the same thing with management. If somebody came to me and said, I want to, I think I want to be a manager. How do I get started? And I have a lot of questions and I'd really encourage them to go down that. Like I would make them read the manager's path three times and then talk to me about what parts of that seem to make a lot of sense. What parts seemed scary? What parts seemed hard? What parts they thought they were already demonstrating and what parts they uh, weren't confident that they could demonstrate at all. I would really like <laughs> be emphatic that I'm not saying you can't do this um, or that you won't be good at it, but I want you to really understand the totality of what's involved in that this is not like you don't accrue power or the ability to like point at things and they happen um, and people are hard and they're not code and like you can break them way worse than you can break production. Like, <laughs> It's heavy stuff uh, to be a manager. And so, yeah, I think it's a whole different job. And I think that to be an effective manager in software engineering, you have to have those technical fundamentals. So, of course, we draw from uh, people who have been software engineers. I think that's necessary, but insufficient. For somebody that's an individual contributor, how would they test themselves if they are good 
in the management track or if they even want to go into management track. Because say you have somebody who's an IC and they're contemplating going into management, but they're not sure. Is this what I want to do? Am I going to be good at this? Is this my jam? What's the litmus test or kind of a self-assessment, if you will, that can tell you that, yes, this is something I want to do? Other people probably have better (laughs) thoughts about this. I think that it was really hard for me to really understand what I was saying yes to. I understood all the caveats. Like I understood that this wasn't promotion and I wasn't going to have magical powers and people weren't going to like respect me more and I wasn't going to get paid more. Like I understood all those disclaimers, but they didn't prepare me for what the actual job was. And a thing that I tell people who are new to management and they're like, or, or they're about to be a manager, they've already made the decision it's about to happen. I just remind them like the only one-on-one you have ever been in is your own without creating awkward situations, we can't change that really. Like (laughs) the only one-on-one you have ever been in is your own. And now you're going to be in three on Tuesday. That's going to be weird and uncomfortable. And here's some stuff to read before you you get there. Um, So that's not really responsive to your, to your question about like, how do you, how do you test this out? But I, I, I think it just, it goes to, there's so much about this that, about management that you can tell people about and you can talk about it and performance management and dealing with underperformers and dealing with deaths in the family or medical like crises that people are having, or you read about that all day long. <laughs> it's really, it's different when you're in it. And, and I find like I can give advice to people all day long about how to deal with all of those situations. But when it, I'm in it, I can't sleep. <laughs> It's it's gut wrenching, but I do think there are other things that that uh, that you could do to kind of evaluate this. Like first, I think take on some project management, take on tasks that prevent you from coding, if you want to achieve the task well, and that could be project management, that could be documentation, that could be kind of customer uh, interview. Like I, I don't, do stuff that's not coding and see how much that hurts. Because that I think is one of the biggest things that can be hard for people is to, to leave that behind. And, and find out like, if you hate project management or if you hate cross-functional collaboration, if you hate like getting, uh, if you are uncomfortable getting to people who are disagreeing to come to some sort of, uh, some sort of path forward, this might not be fun. <laughs> So I think like identifying identifying some non-coding activities that are kind of hallmarks of management, finding ways to create some of those situations or look at times when you've been in those situations and how did you feel about them um, and, and talking through all of that with your manager, or a trusted manager or somebody you know, somebody who's been who has been in the management kind of experience and can reflect you on what the reality of it is. This resonates with me so much because one of the things that I was thinking about was, well, it, once you start into management, you can't quite backtrack, you know, a month later and say, actually, never mind, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not my thing. And also, it you you hit so close home with the statement around the fact that you can't learn this fully by reading things because. It's like trying to learn, I use this analogy of learning a musical instrument by reading a book on how to play it. Yeah, yeah, sure, you know the theory, you understand that there are certain chords that you can do and here's how to hold it, but short of you playing it, you can. As an individual contributor, you're never going to run into a situation where, well, you have somebody underperforming, you have to fire them. How do you go about that? (laughs) Or how do you put them on a performance improvement plan and you fix, try to fix the situation before it gets to firing? It's, It's a hard problem to solve. Yeah, and there's so much, and I think the the I think I I talked about this some in my uh, my lead dev talk that that you have to get comfortable with like redefining what work is. I spent hours yesterday poring over the career ladder uh, at my current role to kind of understand and like parsing these words and phrases and cross referencing them with other like. I spent time on that. Like that was my job yesterday was to deeply understand uh, this particular level of the career ladder. <laughs> like you got to be comfortable with that being work. 
Um, that's not, yeah, that, that, that is actually your job. Uh, and I think the other thing you have to really be comfortable with and kind of have a, have a chat with yourself about whether you're going to be comfortable, comfortable with it is the number of ways that I failed <laughs> in those um, first few months of being a manager, the number of ways that I was just clumsy or actively bad at my job. And, and I, I realize now like that's part of the journey like, because you can't learn this by reading. You have to learn it by doing, and you're going to mess up and you're going to mess up with people who have feelings. Yeah. <laughs> get, get, get right with that. It gets easier. Uh, I feel like I've learned a lot from things that I screwed up, just like you learn a lot from screwing things up with code. I've learned a lot from things that I've screwed up and like, I won't screw those things up again, but it can be really uncomfortable that the thing that you're kind of learning with is, is humans. Figure out how you feel about that. You, you can fix feelings with a pull request is the <laughs> way to put it. <laughs> exactly. Like these bugs are, they're it's different. So you refer to your lead dev talk. And one of the things that stood out to me when I watched it was you referred to the process of influencing people of vastly different backgrounds than yourself. What were the tactics that you used at the time, if you recall, that helped you build this influence? Because I'm sure, again, it's not an easy task when the backgrounds are different and everyone has different motivations. They have a different understanding of the status of everything that's going on. What was your approach to that? I think you nailed it with the word motivations, like figuring out what, what other people are driven by and figuring out how that aligns with what, what you want to achieve. And indeed, I was trying to, to achieve kind of an understanding that, that front-end engineering required specialization and required attention and that we were doing it kind of not that well. And I think everyone, no, no one would disagree with me saying those words that we weren't, we weren't doing it so great then. And so I was trying to drive alignment around that concept, uh, but I was, I was trying to do it with people who came from like very traditional CS backgrounds and who kind of many of them would look at front-end development and it's very complicated. Uh, like, I think it's very complicated how people view it. I think there's an interesting interplay between this is really hard and I don't understand it. And therefore it is not real. <laughs> like it's just pixels. And like, why would I be bothered to understand it given that like I'm off doing real programming with Java or something like, uh, and this is overstating and everyone I worked with was lovely and no one was a jerk about this, but, but I think there was, um, you know, having to get people to recognize like, this is hard. This is legitimate. It's a specialization. It's a different domain that has some actually really fascinating computer science problems in it. Um, they're just not the ones that you're used to dealing with when you own the hardware where your, where your code runs. <laughs> Like, and so I think just just kind of recognizing what people were motivated by, what people were interested in, how they valued their own work, kind of opened doors to being able to talk to them about what was what was maybe more interesting than they realized about the work that I was doing. I think this carries on though to like just understanding like what is this team working on? How does that ladder up to business goals? And uh, how, like, how can they speak their language and using, so you got to go study, you got to go read, like, what are they trying to get done this quarter? What are they, what are their staffing plans? What are their gaps? What incidents have they had recently? Maybe I could have, maybe the thing that I want to do would have helped that incident not happen. So kind of like an anthropological study <laughs> of your targets and figuring out what motivates them and what, what they're trying to achieve and using that to kind of find areas of alignment. And again, we're getting to the point of what we talked about earlier, where it's all about people. It's less so about the CS problems, it's about the people problems of how you build that understanding and an outline of motivations and goals and aspirations and why are they doing certain things. So you became a manager. How do you balance indirect influence and direct influence? Because I feel like this is one of those areas where now you have the power to hire and fire people. It's in your purview. But at the same time, you don't want to, I want to say, just 
totally shut down any kind of ideas because people are afraid to disagree with you because like, well, if I, if I say no to what you said as an engineering leader, then there's going to be consequences for me. What, how do you find that balance? I think I'm not always great at this. I took a, a training just a couple of weeks ago, I guess, um, where we talked some about this and the, that this is really an aspect of coaching. It's not that you want to just let people do whatever they want, but you want to give them the tools to arrive at the right conclusion, which may be your conclusion or may not be your conclusion, but you want to give them the tools to arrive at the right conclusion. So a great phrase that came up in that training was when you hear a like completely asinine idea uh, that you <laughs> have a strong urge to just shut down right now. Instead, you say, tell me more about how that would work. It's really simple. It's like you keep that phrase in your back pocket. Just tell me more about how that would work. And uh, you may have to go through a few iterations of that, but, but either you're going to discover that you're wrong and they know how it would work and like, oh, that could work. Or you are going to kind of help them reach, help them go through the, the train of thoughts that went through your head in a split second help them go through those same thoughts and or similar thoughts and get to the, get to the right answer. Um, I, I will say again, at my last job, I was at my last job a lot longer than I've been at my current jobs. So that's why I keep talking about it. Um, but at my last job, um, I felt very, very, very strongly that a collection of smart people who I had hired were very wrong about a fundamental design decision about a system that we were about to build. And I felt it like in my bones that they, were, that they were wrong about this. I was very, you know, they were senior. I was not shy about telling them that I thought that they were wrong. And I thought that it would have this and this and this and this risk. And uh, we ended up building it the way they wanted to build it because it was objectively far simpler to ignore my concerns than to address them. And they were right. That system has been running for a couple of years and that the things that I was worried about like never became the kind of pivotal concerns that I was worried that they might be. And the system will probably be replaced long before uh, those things become pivotal concerns. So I don't know what the point there is, except like you will be wrong. <laughs> um, trust the people around you. Some decisions, it's okay. Like you can do the easy thing and find out if the hard thing ever was actually necessary. And also I think that, that the, the way that you handle this depends a lot on the seniority of the person. Like these were all level peers. Uh, we could be very direct with each other uh, to the point of like good naturedly raising our voices in closed door conference rooms. Like we could be very direct with each other. It might not be the way to handle that with uh, somebody who's a couple few years out of school. So it, it depends, but yeah, I like that. Tell me how that would work. Tell me more about how that would work uh, as, a, as a tool for navigating those sorts of things. That's an interesting life hack that I'll have to try myself because I often find myself in the exact <laughs> situation that you described where you can you can just sense that the direction that somebody's going is like, this is going to backfire so badly. How do I stop it? But then the instinct is telling you that this is wrong, but there's what you're saying is there's a non-zero probability that actually it's not as bad. And you have to be in the crude way of saying that you have to pick your battles and know which hill to die on. Like, do you really want to go to bat for this one thing? There, there's this concept of trapdoor projects. So is this a trap or trapdoor decisions? Like, is this a decision that, that we're going to fall through the floor and there's no ladder? Uh, or is this like, yeah, well, if we're wrong, we'll figure it out pretty, pretty quickly and we'll only have lost a couple of weeks. And and that may be another um, thing worth worth saying about this whole management thing is like your, your time horizons have to change. That was one of the weirdest things was that I couldn't, especially when I was a manager of managers, it was dangerous for me to care about what was happening this week um, or even next week or next sprint. That was a, that was a huge risk. And I had to be comfortable with like, that's just going on over there. And I need to be thinking a month out, a quarter out, half out and getting more comfortable with like, sometimes we're going to burn two weeks and have nothing to show for it. That's just, you know, that feels really bad as an engineer. That's not ideal, but it's going to happen. And how much energy are you going to spend on preventing it from happening? 
And that is also ties to this concept of when teams try to become hyper efficient, where they forget to have that flex room of saying that things will go wrong and it's okay. Like it's not the end of the world that we'll have to revert this one change. Yeah, there are, and some of this is the, the nature of the work that I tend to do, which is platformy work. I, I haven't worked on directly on product in a while, but outside of like productions down, we <laughs> should maybe do something about that. Like there are fewer things that can't wait than we like to pretend. There, there's a lot of things that you may you may tell yourself that it's uh, that it has to be done by the end of the week, and it depends on the business. Like there, there's so much that there's there's so much that this depends on. So I don't want to say anything like broad strokes, like none of this matters. Uh, but I think we can get really caught up in feeling like things matter because things mattering feels good. It's like yeah, you, like this is not this is not the hill to die on. Whether we ship this this week or next week. Like, it's a bummer if we ship it next week, but like, don't, don't beat yourself up. In the grand scheme of things, one week is not that long of a time period to, to have fights and again, destroy personal relationships. But we talked a lot about the soft side of things of management, how you have to account for people. I still feel like it's important to be on top of the, the technology landscape and technology is evolving daily. Like every time I open my inbox or the RSS feed, there's some new technology, new framework, new language coming out. How do you personally find time and maybe kind of like the mental space to stay on top of the ever-changing technology landscape when it seems like the bulk of your time is going to be spent solving these people problems, if you will? I don't. Maybe that's a bad answer, but I've, I've kind of, I, I, you know, I follow people on Twitter and read articles when they come across my radar or whatever, or somebody posts something in Slack at work and I'll read it. Like, I don't, I'm not like, you know, shut off from sources of information, but I long ago stopped pretending that I could keep up with technology in a way that would let me lead kind of decisions about the minutia. Um, decisions about the details. And this is another thing that I had to get really comfortable with. It's like, at some point you, you have to learn how to ask good questions and how to learn what you need to know in the moment. And, and so I think that's the skill you, you transition from, I need to stay up to date with everything going on because there's a, there's a time in your career where that's what you need to do. And that differentiates you if you're, if you're pretty tuned in to what's, um, to what's going on in the industry. But I think you, at a certain level of seniority, and I'm not even sure this is unique to management, like you, you have to learn how to learn and you have to learn how to learn fast and you have to learn how to learn the right things. Uh, so now when I'm in, dis- in discussions about kind of technical decisions, it's a lot more about like, how will we know that this is going wrong like what instrumentation are we going to need? What are the what are the failure modes? Like, what are the alternatives that we've considered? Why did we rule them out? Um, so it's kind of having a roster of questions that you go through that apply to a broad set of technical decisions and getting the right people in place around you. Like everything I'm saying works great if you have senior engineering partners. It works terribly if you have a bunch of new college grads. Right, very very different situation. So getting the right skill set around you, so that you you can be kind of like the the voice on somebody's shoulder, saying asking how will this go wrong? How confident are we? How can we get more confident? How can we decrease risk? But those questions, the amount that you need to know about a technology in order to participate in that discussion, you can gain that knowledge often inside a day, if you have practiced gaining that kind of knowledge inside of a day. And and that's your point about prioritizing and learning to learn the important things instead of just following the next shiny object that comes up like every day, every yeah. week. But but like I said, I think that there is a, maybe not the next shiny object, like there, there is a time when it is important for you to be pretty connected to the, to the technology that the industry is using and knowing kind of the what the pitfalls are. And there is a time for knowing technology, specific technologies in great detail. I 
think I'm past that time for better or for worse. So I want to talk more about the building of a healthy team, because again, as an engineering leader with experience, you probably know this best. And I recall a phrase that again, you used in one of your talks where you said, instincts <laughs> will lie to you. And I think you were using that in relation to when you were uh, learning how to fly, <laughs> which is another very interesting tangent of the, all the things that you're doing. But you mentioned that instincts will lie to you. And this is, I want to get your take on how that applies to the health of an engineering team. Because there's a lot of, again, if you read a lot of blog posts, books, there's a lot of objective measures that people, or people pretend they're objective measures of how good is your team performing? What's your take on establishing those measures or metrics that know that we are doing well or we need a course correction? I don't think there's any one measure, right? Like there's no, we instrument this metric and suddenly we get a yes or no answer, like a magic eight ball kind of thing. At the same time, at, at my last job, I, I feel like we did a really good job saying we, we feel like we are not delivering efficiently. Um, I feel like there are bottlenecks. There clearly are bottlenecks in our process, but we don't really have good visibility into where they are, which teams are experiencing them or how much. And, and so we put a whole lot of work into, not me, uh, I, was, I was just the beneficiary of it, but we, the company, put a whole lot of work into instrumenting kind of our workflows and being able to quantify what is the time that it takes from when somebody starts working on a ticket to when the, the code related to that ticket is in production. What is that? What is that time? And what are the different activities going on in there? And how long are they taking? That produced a number like for the team, but you couldn't look at that number and say, this is good. Um, if it was zero, that's good. But I guess it could be zero because you delivered absolutely nothing the whole quarter. You didn't ship anything. And therefore zero, it took you zero days to ship nothing. Or, or there's so many things that can influence that number that even for an individual, even for an individual ticket. And, and so I think that it's important to have these numbers so that you can track trends and so you can zoom in and see where there are bottlenecks and those sorts of things. But it, it's also important to numbers are completely insufficient for understanding the health of a team. Yeah, so I think numbers are a, they are really, really useful and you should instrument your processes and you should, you should, instrument the things that you care about that you think make a healthy team. I know that we, uh, at my last job, we may at, at my new job too, use the Atlassian team health monitor, which was a very qualitative tool, uh, not quantitative at all, but a very qualitative tool for the team to kind of self-report and self-reflect on uh, its health. I really, I liked that. You should go read about it. The other thing I'd say in this, in this whole like instincts will lie to you, they'll lie to you about people too. Like bias is real and you can kind of, experience somebody doing something that you don't like and get really anchored to uh, the idea that like, oh, they're the person who does the things that I don't like and not really evaluate, was that just a moment in time? Was that, is that a trend? Is it a real problem or do I just not like them? And, and so as a manager, I think being, you have to be objective, but that doesn't mean that you like punch numbers into a calculator and out comes your answer and that's your answer. Like you have to be objective when you are thinking about people and you have to recognize that that numbers will never tell the whole story about what's what's going on. And that itself is such a powerful statement because it applies to not just engineering management, but also product design. When there is somebody that's overly indexed on a specific number or metric and say, we have to drive this up. But what qualitative insights do you have for this? W what customers talk to you about this? For that, I love the idea of having goals that kind of have tension built into them, where we need to increase X without decreasing Y or without Y decreasing more than this much. Uh, so I love goals that have, yeah, tension written into the goals. So those sorts of trade-offs aren't implicit, they're explicit, that this is the amount of trade-off that we're willing to accept. You have the experience as an engineering leader now. Uh, you're working at Stripe, you've uh, achieved a level of success that a lot of folks uh, are not there yet. One piece of advice that you would give yourself, knowing everything that you know now, that you would tell yourself back in the day, what would that be? It really depends on when, but <laughs> this isn't advice, but just it's all going to be okay. 
uh, it's all going to be okay. And the things that feel like they really, really, really matter, like they don't find a sustainable pace and just like make sure you mostly enjoy what you do. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, that for me personally, it's all going to be okay is probably like the most meaningful thing that I could have said to 19 year old self working at the video store, wondering like if I just made a huge mistake. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I like that. I, I also like about the pace that it's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Like it, it all finds a way of working out in the end, but Rebecca, this has been so insightful and I'm so grateful that you got a chance to come on the show. For people that want to learn more about the work that you're doing, where can they go learn about that? Uh, you know, I'm on Twitter, but I mostly yell about politics there. Uh, but I'm R. Murphy on Twitter. Can't remember the last thing I said, something technically relevant there. So maybe not the best place, but I am trying to write a little bit more at my blog, uh, rmurphy.com. And I post something on medium so yeah i don't know uh follow me on twitter and if i say anything interesting that's not political i'll i'll also say it there <laughs> that's probably that and my uh my personal site are probably my best uh your best bets this is fantastic i i love the saying from uh, scott hansman where he mentioned that we are uh people with multiple interests and multiple facets so when people you know, get in his mentions and say, hey, I only follow you for tech. Like, <laughs> well, we're people and we do more than just tech and we care about things other than tech. So it's okay. Yeah. Rebecca, that's thank a you whole so other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> 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 thank you so much for sharing all your insights with us. And uh, I look forward to learning about all the awesome things that you'll continue building in the future. All right. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. 